I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. I'm Jamie Trucker. I'm here with Jeremy Kitchen and Mike Sack, as always. And today we are taping this show on May 7th. 2017, our live broadcast direct from Studio B here in beautiful downtown Bridgeport. Jeremy, Mike, good morning. How are you guys? Morning, morning Jamie. Jamie. Doing well. We have a special show today that is kind of going all over the map. We have a special guest in the house, Teresa Principe. We're going to be talking about books featuring the occult. We're going to be talking about space opera. And then our local malcontent has got some recipes for us uh, that involve eating insects. Uh, why don't we start off, Jeremy, why don't we take it away and uh, <laughs> let's dive right into this uh, cornucopia of, of fresh, fleshy food. Good morning. Thanks, Jamie. So I'm going to talk about a book today called Creepy Crawly Cuisine, and it's all uh, recipes involving insects, including insects. Uh, one of the interesting uh, factoids that I learned while investigating this book is that eating insects is healthier than most protein. Um, and one of the things they compare it to is, you know, when we think of food in this country and in a lot of Western civilizations, we think of you know, fast food restaurants, McDonald's, Taco Bell, pizza, et cetera. And, and in a lot of indigenous cultures, you know, they don't look at fast food as food. They look at it as like a bunch of processed chemicals that have very little resemblance to food. And that's where we get the um, these traditions of eating these kind of things passed down. Have any of you guys ever eaten an insect? I, I have. When I was very young, yeah, probably. Never. Never. Never, never. <laughs> well, let's back up a little bit. What what got you interested in in this subject to begin with, I mean, there has been a lot of literature out. Fast Food Nation, obviously, Morgan Spurlock uh, did Supersize Me, the movie. There's been a lot of talk about food, food usage, and how uh, the overproduction and harvesting of meat has uh, damaging our environment. And there is a, a movement right now uh, that maybe isn't that widely known, where scientists are trying to extract protein from different places. And of course, insect meal is one of them. I believe crickets uh, are being ground up currently. Uh, I believe it's right here in the state of Illinois. Uh, the University of Illinois is working on a process to get crickets into flour, to make uh, tortillas, to make bread and stuff like that. But what, what drew your interest to this, Jeremy? Well, there's a movement that I read about that it goes along with the same thing, and they believe that we should use insect for protein because of overproduction, overpopulation, and at some point that this particular movement, they feel that once we get to a certain point, there isn't going to be beef and there isn't going to be pork, There's going to be, but there's going to be plentiful insects. They're easy to control. They're easy to breed. Um, it's, and again, you know, in our society, it's, it's, it's looked upon as disgusting. I, I, I've had, um, I've eaten bugs several times. I mean, obviously the tequila worms, you know, mm -hmm. I'm sure we've all ran down that road. Um, I ate a larva from something. It smelled like lemons in the Amazon. Um, it was fine. It was like a little maggot. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't chew it, but I swallowed it. Um, and this story is kind of great. When I was about eight, I have an older sister, and she bet me 10 bucks that I wouldn't chew up an earthworm. And I have a pretty large family, and I agreed to do it. And I uh, put an earthworm on a big tablespoon, covered it with mustard, and chewed it up, <laughs> got 10 bucks. So, What did you buy with that $10? Um, I probably bought magazines. Yeah. yeah, I used to buy skateboard magazines, music magazines, comic books. Yeah. So um, that was pretty much what I used to spend my money on. Um, much to the, my 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 stepfather was a, a union hardworking dude, and he never understood why I spent all my hard earned money on, <laughs> on, on, on literature. Yeah. But it well, paid off. He knows now. Yeah, 
Well, I want to go back just a little bit because there is an extensive amount of literature out right now about food. And I think that says something about the culture and the cultural moment we're living in right now. If you look at what's on the newsstands, there are a number of glossy publications right now focusing on this kind of bourgeois presentation of food, whether it's Milk Street, uh, Cook's, Bon Appetit, uh, Savour. There, there seems to be at the moment uh, also a fetishization of certain kinds of production of food. I'm thinking of the popularity of Fergus Henderson's Nose to Tail Cooking uh, out of St. John's in, in England, uh, Momofuku's uh, stuff that's coming from David Chang in New York uh, with the milk bar and everything. There's a mission cooking as well. Um, is there, that San Francisco Mission? Yeah, San Francisco yeah. Mission. And Mission, of course, went to New York and opened restaurants. Uh, but there seems to be a movement uh, being reflected, first of all, in literature about getting back to a more um, – what is perceived to be anyway a more natural way of cooking and, and eating. And it is first being presented through uh, kind of eccentric and esoteric cookbooks. And I'm wondering if we could kind of open up the discussion to maybe think a little bit about why that would be because I think that says something very particular about our culture at the moment. Well, first of all, I want to make a disclaimer. This will be the only foodie book that I will ever discuss. I think food literature is – uh, pretentious and boring. I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, you look at the New Yorker, you look at Book Forum, you look at any magazine and they have like food writing. And to me, like reading about food is like watching wallpaper dry. And that's just me. And I'm not, you know, I'm not criticizing you guys if that's what you're into. But the only foodie conversation I'll ever have on this show is going to involve insects. Just <laughs> disclaimer. Well, Mike, you're a professional at this. I mean, what's your, what's your take on this? <laughs> well, I'm in a different part of the field it's a you know mom and pop bar making burgers and dogs but i think um there are a lot of people out there who are going to school for this kind of thing and they're learning the the fundamentals of of uh classical kind of fine arts cooking but they might come from more i don't know uh humble working class backgrounds so you see this fusion of of the highbrow and lowbrow in cooking mm-hmm. of um you know, being sure to be absolutely resourceful. I think that's what nose to tail cooking is, right? Yeah, that is. Yeah, and now we eat everything. Yeah, nose using every tail. part of the animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think what Jamie said, though, that the fetishization of it is is very true. Um, and all this stuff has to be wasteful. You know, they they do these presentations for magazines. I don't think everyone's eating everything. Well, no, those are all just for photography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I don't know. It's just the whole thing kind of. For me, it's like it's people that talk about uh, like foodies or craft beer or marijuana cultivation. You know, it's just like it's kind of like um, intelligentsia for the not very intelligent. And I'm probably going to get crucified for saying yeah. that. But Especially that, since the uh, the person that owns the radio station publishes a beer magazine. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> Sorry. Well, we're going we're gonna to play an excerpt from, from your book. But I, one thing I did want to kind of throw out there is – you know, for the first time in the city of Chicago, more dollars were spent this past year at restaurants than were spent at grocery stores. Really? Yes. For the first time this year, uh, a stat just came out that in, in 2016, more, more dollars were spent on the food service industry. And that could be prepared food, Panera, whatever, but more were spent there than at a Mariano's, a Dominic's, or anything else. And I, I wonder, and maybe after we play this clip, we can talk about this a little bit, whether people are talking about and reading about food because they're no longer preparing it for themselves. And I, I you know, I kind of want to throw that out there and that's something to mull. We're going to play a segment here on crickets and, and frass actually, which is another 
delight. But this is a segment from Creepy Crawly Cuisine. We'll be back in just about two minutes. Crickets a la Papuasi. These garlicky crickets are exquisite, with a superior flavor to shrimp. You will be delighted when you try them. The ingredients are as follows. Eight tablespoons butter, one head garlic, cloves peeled, one half pound live crickets, one eighth teaspoon salt, parsley chopped to taste, powdered bouillon to taste. These crickets should have one day of fasting so they will be cleaned internally. Mince the peeled garlic cloves. Place the butter in a frying pan and add the chopped garlic. When garlic is browned, add the crickets and salt and fry over low heat until crickets are slightly crunchy, approximately three minutes. Sprinkle with chopped parsley and powdered bouillon and serve with white rice. Chongcha is a tea made from the frass, the technical term for insect excrement, of Hydrolodes morosa and Algosa dimidita, two species without common names in the West. The former is a noctuid caterpillar, a member of the family Noctuidae, which includes the cabbage looper and corn earworm. A. dimidita is a member of the family Pyrolide, the snout moth. In the mountainous areas of Funan, Guizhou, and Guangxi, the excrement is highly prized for chongcha. This black fragrant beverage is thought to aid digestion, alleviate diarrhea, and treat bleeding hemorrhoids. Chongcha has been little studied by Western science, but its medicinal properties may well be due to the presence in the frass of pharmacologically active substances in the insect's diet. Such compounds often pass through the caterpillar's digestive system unchanged and are excreted in the frass. A well-known example is the South American Malumbia caterpillar, which feeds exclusively on erythroxylon coca. Its frass contains substantial amounts of pure cocaine. And that was a reading from Creepy Crawly Cuisine, the Gourmet Guide to Edible Insects. Uh, we were talking about a little bit, of, you know, I, I wasn't trying to insult, insult all the foodies out there. I, I know Jamie's into the food literature, but, um, you know, balance it out, people, balance it out. Um, so some of the flavors that I, they talk about in the books, um, Teresa was just telling me well, she had a friend that used to put ground ants in her coffee, and apparently they have a sweet or nutty flavor. And crickets, which we just heard about in the recipe, have a mild flavor, which takes on the flavors around them. So, um, And I also wanted to mention that people do eat cockroaches and lice. So if you ever... Uh, what about earthworms with mustard? Uh, that, well, that's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's happened, too. You know what's funny, too, is I hate mustard. Um, oh, man. It could be because of the earthworms. Yeah. And I remember, <laughs> well, you know how they process sand through their body or dirt? through. Their, so oh. when you chew on them, you're like crunching dirt, mm. you know? So it's, I'll tell you what. $15 for Chicago-style earthworm. So that's mustard, relish, onion, tomato. I'll probably do it. Yeah, I could probably do, that. Salt. probably do that. So Teresa mentioned that her family, um, she comes from a line of Italian food distri distribution, and Mike also, uh, his family has a food distribution. Uh, it's, a, it's kosher, am I correct, Mike? It's pickled herring, kosher for Passover. Yeah. So do you guys want to talk a little bit about um, your family's businesses growing up? Oh, Mike's was in the Eastern Market in Detroit, and Teresa was years in Chicago here? All Chicago, yeah. It started on Fulton Market in 1921, I think. Oh, is it still there? Uh, not there. They've moved from there to Cicero, and then after the 80s, now they're in uh, Bolingbroke. Bolingbroke. I imagine mm -hmm. the rents are probably insane over at oh, Fulton probably, Market yeah. these days. Yeah. Yeah. Did you guys, though, when you were growing up, I mean, did you read books about food or was it trade magazines or I mean mm, no I never read any literature like it was around but we'd more so just talk to the actual people yeah. in Italy and like we'd have to well 
we didn't have to, but I was delighted to go visit them in Italy and talk to them. Now, of course, you, but having a food distribution company, you probably would have been a little closer to the means of production of that food, and you actually had a chance to talk to the producers. I mean, I can say it's interesting probably for people who don't have those opportunities to be able to read about that kind of stuff and find out. Yeah, totally. Yeah. My mom hates hated fast food and everything because in our products, you, literally, there's like four ingredients, and it's not very processed. It's very, yeah. Which is a big rarity these days. And then Mike's family business, so Mark Cohen's, is that what it's called, Mike? The, that's the brand of hearing the company, Seafair Foods. Seafair Foods has been in the Eastern Market in Detroit for... Uh, in the Eastern market for a little over 10 years, but they've been in Detroit since 58. Well, you guys were on the East side, right? Before the Eastern market, we're on the Northwest side. Northwest side. And then before that, it was, uh, it was near, uh, Fort street and I can't, uh, Fort and green, which is nice area. Yeah. Didn't. <laughs> <laughs> That, that was like no man's land in the 80s. It didn't was you, right by the tracks. Didn't which, your dad find a body outside the... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, food, Sorry, distribution, food distribution and, and uh, organized crime have had a long history. Together. Yeah. Not, not to bring yeah. that up. <laughs> <laughs> not we, to think Italians would have anything that. to do with that. No, never. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> is there, I mean, is there, going back to your book, Jeremy, I mean, this is something that obviously is pretty much on the margins. Of food literature. I can't imagine a lot of people picking this book up for more than kind of curiosity value. I mean, are you going out to try to find out how to how to fry up crickets and, and garlic? I probably won't start eating insects. I um, I actually am sort of afraid. I'm afraid of insects. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm terrified of I don't like spiders. Well, okay, it's not insects, but anything. I don't like creepy crawlies. I don't like spiders. I don't like scorpions. And to be honest, I don't really like insects either. Like, I don't want bugs around me. Um, this was more, I found this, I, uh, so we do a process in the library. It's called deselection. You remove old books. And I was just going through our collection of cookbooks because we have a lot of cookbooks, as you mentioned, are very popular. And I found this book and I just, I became intrigued by it. But Mike, didn't you, didn't you say that kids over at Pilsen Community Books said something that this book was popular currently? Yeah. Well, just books on eating insects apparently are. Yeah. I mean, there is a kind of. Garnering more attention. Yeah. Maybe, um, maybe. But I think what you said before the the reading, Jamie, was interesting. That that maybe the the interest in foodie culture is because a lot of people aren't cooking at home, and I yeah. I noticed that for sure in the neighborhood I work in. Where I work, it's mostly neighborhood people coming into uh, you know probably within a five block radius, right. coming in to grab a quick dog or burger or chicken sandwich or whatever, and a lot of people just don't don't have time to cook and right. it's, it's like that with friends too so maybe it's like um it sounds like a cultural issue you know when i was growing up my dad worked my mom worked too but she was a teacher she'd get home and she made dinner dinner was on the table and my dad got home from work and we don't a lot of people don't have that luxury anymore because a lot of times both right. if, if it's a traditional family both parents are working non-traditional family everybody's working all the time and we've gone from this full-time employment to a gig economy and I, I think what Jamie said makes a lot of sense because if we're not having the time to prepare meals or you do one of those things where they like mail you the ingredients and you mm-hmm. prepare it at home, which yeah. still is work, right. that you're going to look for outside sources on, on, 
on food preparation. And so I think my judgment was just reduced a little bit. So that makes a lot of sense when you think of it from that perspective. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's interesting because I think a, a lot of us, I mean, I grew up in that kind of household where uh, dinner was always on the table, five or six o'clock, Teresa, you're nodding yeah. your head, you're saying the same thing. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't see that a lot. I see a lot of people in our age bracket, our age group, who don't do that at all. You know what I mean? Um, and I, w- I would confess that, you know, working here at the radio station, uh, time is at a premium. You know, if you're up at six in the morning and your, your shift really doesn't end until, you know, eight, 10 at night, you, you probably are trying to grab stuff during the day. You know what yeah. I mean? So uh, culturally, I wonder if because of that, if here in America, we've we've gone so much away from kind of the ways that we used to consume and produce food and we had family meals and that kind of family cohesion, if people are trying to find that in literature about that, you know. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. I just want to mention really quick, too. I mean, a lot of cultures eat insects um, all over the world. I mean, I I have this one book. Does the FDA regulate insects? No. Well, most of these countries probably don't have an FDA. You know, it's Uganda, Indonesia, Thailand. And I actually ate uh, sticky rice up on the north side has fried worms. I think they're mealworms. Oh, yeah, mealworms. And I've eaten those. Mexico, China. And then the one, uh, I have this other book called Man-Eating Bugs, The Art and Science of Eating Insects, which is actually a young adult book, which um, if you ever want to read a history book that you don't want to read a giant, like, 600-page tome, grab a YA book because you can get it in a couple hundred pages and you can get through and get the basics. But the one place in the United States they talk about was a, a company that makes candy and they put bugs in the lollipops, you know, and that was one of the... You know, they have uh, scorpions. Apparently, if you fry a scorpion, it removes the poison. Um, they eat them raw in China, but they have to remove the stinger and the, the venom sac, which is a, a difficult, somewhat, uh, it's a, uh, not a profession. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, oh, like a. Skill? A skill. A selected <laughs> yeah. skill that many don't it's like, it's like fugu. The, the, yeah. The Japanese sushi. The Fugu, the Japanese sushi, the, the fish that's poisonous and you're supposed to Oh, cut the blowfish? The... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Which Homer Simpson ate. He did. <laughs> yeah. He did. He's indestructible. No, he, he almost died and he listened to the Bible this narrated time. by Larry King. <laughs> 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 well, an- a- another reason why I think it's, it's really popular is um, this idea of passion, at least in our culture, that, you know, this uh, passion is positive and kind of contagious and the the people who I'm thinking of like Anthony Bourdain and the guy with the spiky hair on the Food Channel oh, who does guy the Guy Fury yeah <laughs> it's the worst you know they <laughs> hey bro it's yeah it's it's it is easy to get excited about food that tastes good yeah of course and yeah. um, I think that it's easily saleable maybe to people who have to eat food every day whereas you know it's not as easy to talk about literary fiction. And sure. convey how it's accessible to everyone right. in a way. Yeah. It's right. unless that's you're a, poor. That's a good point. That's yeah. a good point. That's a good point. There, I just want to mention one last thing. There's a Guy Fieri video on YouTube of him eating hot dogs to Johnny Cash singing Nine Inch Nails Hurt. And it's one of the most amazing videos <laughs> I've ever seen. So <laughs> is, is isn't, there, isn't there a guy who does who eats weird stuff on there for? Uh, Adam Richman used to do uh, Man vs. Food. That's what. We're talking, talking about bizarre foods with uh, Andrew Zimmerman. So I there's a guy that does the bizarre food show. As okay, well. yeah, is it go- still around? 
I, well, Adam Richman um, stopped doing Man vs. Food because he gained so much weight. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, oh, he, he actually is a, a – I happen to know him sort of. He went to Syracuse, and okay. so I know him sort of through a couple of friends. And he, he was feeling so horrible that he had to stop doing the show. I, I don't know about the Bizarre Foods show. I, you know, I, candidly, I don't really watch a lot of the, the food network. Okay. It, yeah. I will say Chopped is a very seductive show. Oh, I know yeah. we're not supposed to give endorsements, but watching the little kids on Chopped, Junior yeah. Chopped, is is kind of both perverse and, enjo- and very enjoyable. Sounds like a horror movie. It does. It does sound like a horror movie. Speaking of horror movies, you know, we have a kind of a loose theme uh, here developing, but we our, our guest today uh, is a devotee of occult books and palmistry books, and so she's also a patron here at the Bridgeport Library, and we had her on to discuss a couple of the tomes that she wanted to talk about. So, Teresa, take it away. What did, what did you bring in for us today? Yeah, so I brought in a few books, but they're more so the scientific approach to palmistry and less of the clairvoyant psychic Realm. Well, tell us first of all, what, what do you mean by, by palmistry? Let's tell our listeners what that is, because they obviously cannot see this giant stack of books obscuring you <laughs> from the rest of us. Well, I did want to mention, too, Teresa is actually a palm reader. Is it a palmist? Uh, you'd say palmist or okay. palm reader. Teresa actually does it for a living, as 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 with other jobs. But she did a, a, a show at my library yesterday, and we had a couple families in there and it was a it was a good yeah. thing but she's a she actually is a practitioner not just a studier i just want to mention that before we uh, kick it off so go yeah. ahead Teresa. sorry to yeah interrupt. thank you um yeah so i have a huge book that's basically just case study after case study by william um benham and he actually went to disprove every pseudoscience and every occult with like tarot i ching and he was just retired after working his whole life as a pediatric doctor, like a family doctor. So he started with palmistry and ended up spending 12 years of his life researching and doing case studies on different palms. And he has hands in here. He has like some of the first, like this, this was originally published in 1900, but they are scans of like robbers, murderers, like sweet poets and like sensitive types and he just like went wild and um, he's actually the one who inspired me to do I've done case studies for the past three years on some of my clients what's the title of that Teresa it's called the Benham book of palmistry okay a practical are there schools for palmistry um I know that there are some psychic schools in Chicago there's one called envision I believe but there's no, there's like, you can learn online. Something um, passed down. Did you learn from someone or did, are you self-taught? Yeah, my mom taught me. Oh, cool. Yeah, when I was 15. And we would just do it with our friends. And then she, uh, I think the Catholic guilt got her. She won't read palms very much anymore. <laughs> is, there, is there a kind of palm reader's Bible? Is that it? The, the Benham book? Um, the palmistry? Like everyone, every palm reader is different and every palm reader is going to have a different sort of Bible. Like the practice of palmistry by Count St. Germain is probably a lot of palm readers' Bibles. Yeah, we were talking about him before the show. Um, You mentioned the word immortal. Oh, yeah. He's like, so someone could be just trying to use his name. But since like the 17th, hundreds he's been accounted for being imprisoned 
for showing up and like hanging out with different kings and princes. Is he? A, he was a poem reader. Yeah, apparently, and he also was. Um, su- this was his like supposed story. He like broke down and told one of the British kings, like I'm actually was supposed to be helping God on the crucifix, and I didn't. So he punished me to immortality. And I've since been reading palms and sign me up. Princess. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question about the the is it the Bentham what the oh the Benham book the Benham book. Now you said that there were scans of palms or excuse me of palms of criminals and sensitive poets and things like that. Are there patterns for different types of people? Like for example. A malcontent, or a <laughs> uh, so like if you, you know, if you were to look at my palm, would you be able to tell me if I was going to go out and murder someone at some point? I know I'm being very generalized there, but or if I'm just like you can definitely tell if someone's like super imbalanced, or maybe like a really. <laughs> Don't Not trying to read your palm. <laughs> I had them under my arm. <laughs> your hands are smelly. <laughs> no. Um, you can tell if people are like liars or like just don't care what anybody thinks. Um, Have you had ever, ever had a scary poem? Like read someone's poem, and you're just like, oh my god, I can't believe this person's loose on society. <laughs> <laughs> I want to read that poem so bad, but honestly, I haven't. Okay. I really would like to read someone like that. Um, but I have read, I read every year. I read it after prom party, so it's like all these eighteen-year-olds, seventeen-year-olds. And they are the coolest group of kids, I swear. They, um, they're just starting out, so everything's super fresh. And uh, one, one, of the, one of those students had some weird disposition, but he was a good guy. It's a little bit of a like, borderline scary poem. Yeah, maybe a lot of anger. Yeah. Take us through real quick what you, what you look for in a poem. Oh, I look for a lot. So you have to really look at pretty much a lot a combination of a lot of things before you start reading a poem or at least I do uh, again every poem reader is different but I look first I touch and I feel blood pressure I touch for skin texture dexterity plumpness blood pressure then you look at color then you look at depth in your lines all together and then you check like the vitals the three major lines you know like your head heart and hit a lifeline. And then you get really into the smaller lines after that. But you're also looking at um, shape because there's like different worlds. There's three major worlds. There's your base world, then there's your practical world, and then your imaginary world. So you look at how those interact. But you're basically looking how everything, every single little thing in each area interacts with each other. And um, you kind of work the person through it while you do it. Is clamminess a factor? What was it? Clamminess. Um, I mean, sometimes I get clammy. I heard somebody complaining yesterday about having sweaty palms when I walked by the presentation <laughs> yeah. at the library. <laughs> you're like, it's just you might be nervous. I heard <laughs> you say yeah. that. Yeah, that's pretty great. Yeah. So, so you're telling like a, in, a, in a way a little story about the person based on this stuff. Yeah, exactly. And if they want me to focus on something, like we'll totally focus on that factor. Mm-hmm. Do you know if there's any history with the law asking for help from palm readers? Ooh. I don't I don't know. Like in court cases? Psychometry. Yeah. I'm not sure. No, I have never heard anything of I know that like the FBI definitely recruits 
psychics for psychometry when they're trying to find missing persons, which is something that, hey, FBI, you should recruit me. (laughs) (laughs) That's like my dream job. But um, that would be super cool to work with law on. I've seen, you know, documentaries and stuff, even like the big cases like Jean Bonnet and and things like that, that they bring in a psychic. And um, while I was on that subject, too, so the gentleman, I keep forgetting his name. William Benham. Benham. Okay, rhymes with With Venom. Venom. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, he went out to disprove palmistry and then decided that he believes in it, correct? Yeah, it's it's fascinating. If you ever come across this book, you should just read the introduction because... um, (laughs) Yeah, he goes to disprove every pseudoscience. Like, and is that in the introduction alone? He disproves everything, or does he have several works? This uh, Benham, does he have works about disproving, you know, tarot cards or any of those? No, other? he he just like delivered babies forever. Oh, okay. And then retired and was like, I'm a grumpy old man, and I'm gonna disprove all this murky stuff. And then he's like, Oh, I met this palm reader, and she changed my life, and oh, now I'm okay. gonna study this. That's really cool, years. actually. Have you had that moment with anybody reading their poem where they came in kind of mocking you? Yeah. And then you, you spun them around? Oh, yeah. And I don't try to do that or set out to do it because I kind of feel like, well, that's not worth my time. I'm kind of offended because it's my life's work. But um, I did do that at one of the events I worked. And <laughs> this guy ended up giving me a huge tip and was like emailing me and... He was great. He was just very distrustful and disproving. I think he he wanted some reassurance. Reassurance. Well, speaking of reassurance, we've got to go to break. You're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM, Lumpen Radio. We've got to reassure our underwriters that they're actually getting something for supporting the station. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Thanks for listening to I-94. And we're back on WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM, Lumpen Radio. Of course, Paulie Think and the Dunny Show will be up at 2 o'clock. You don't want to miss that. This is I-94. However, right now, I'm Jamie Trecker with Jeremy Kitchen and Mike Sack and our special guest, Teresa Principe. And we're talking about a variety of books. We've gone from cookbooks. We've gone to palmistry and the occult. Let's pick it up right back there again. So palmistry is actually a very old uh, art. It's been around... I believe, since the before recorded history, at least our recorded Western history. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis and the origin of where this came about? Yeah, it's um, it started like ancient Asian cultures, and was it th- India? Is it there's a, there's some reco- I was I was browsing the book that I gave you. Yeah, and it said that there was some early recorded, obviously recorded. I mean, written. Yeah, like ab- text. Yeah, about it in India and in. Like Chinese astrology goes back super far and um, is pretty much the basis for westernized versions of palm reading. The Chinese? Yeah. Okay. And it's a little bit sexist. Is like, it? How, how so? Is um, it's like you read a woman's right hand and a man you read his left hand. Hmm. Um, whereas me, I read, I look at both hands mm-hmm. and I read your dominant hand. And your non-dominant hand is like your disposition in life and where you come from, hmm. um, which is funny because like that just means to me like most most non-dominant hands is left hand, so a man is like allowed to like stay in his past. Hmm. Interesting. 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 I would just want to mention too if if you want more information about palm reading and Teresa's practice, uh, she has a website. It's www. 
TeresaPrincipe.com. Yeah. So for more infor- with an E, right? Yeah. yeah. So for more information, check that out. Thank you. And you have a general interest in, in books in the occult in general, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. So what, where did this interest come from? Just can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I kind of uh, forgot that, well, I was never a really good student until I got to read the fun books in college. And uh, so I read a ton of books in college. And then I remembered I read poems. And then I got super into all of these palm reading books and now I'm reading books on um, a lot of clairvoyant stuff, a lot of trance work, trance meditation, um, and developing like clairvoyance and how to go about that. I don't know. I just I got it. Just was a all of a sudden kind of thing. What determines whether something goes into the occult section? Like at the library, whether the Catholic Church approves of it or not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I just think it's well at the library. We don't really have an occult section, but um, all the so you, we have the library of classification, and every book starts out with two letters, which is funny because Christianity's is BS. <laughs> <laughs> That's a true story. But I, I, books like palm reading and things, I believe, are BPs. It's just it's a classification code. Um, but they kind of lump together any so like Christianity's in one group, Hinduism, Judaism, and then like everything else mm-hmm. is in the BPs. So you would have like, you know, palm rating, Druidism, you know, yeah. stuff that's not really related, but yeah. they're all lumped together. Uh, what are those other the people Wiccan, pagans, yeah. Wiccan, pagans, all that yeah. stuff gets lumped together, which in a way is a disservice. But because you're gonna have a lot more books about. Islam than you are going to have. Like, I mean, I have a lot of, actually, at my library, I do the purchasing, and I buy a lot of, you know, we have books on Satanism, we have books on palm reading, we have, and I'm not saying they're connected, but I do a lot of purchasing because people are interested in that, and not everyone wants to read a Catholic book or a book about Allah, you know? And mm-hmm. so we have a larger section, but it's just a smaller, and less things are published. I mean, there's so many books published about Jesus, it's insane. Are oh. books about the Green Party in the occult section? No, no. <laughs> Um, I think, isn't that in fiction? No, I'm just kidding. But uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I have nothing against Ralph Nader wrote a, wrote a novel. Ralph Nader wrote a novel and he wrote so some non-fiction Gingrich, books. So, too. you know, it goes both ways. Yeah. You know. <laughs> but, I mean, it's interesting. We're, we are in a cult, and this is kind of what I wanted to get to. We are in a cultural moment where, uh, in this country anyway, um, I guess traditional American religions are on the wane again. And it seems that interest in uh, things that were once considered a cult or out there, or however you want to put it, are on the rise. I mean, there's a great deal of television programming about aliens, clairvoyance, uh, occult activities. One of the most popular TV shows, obviously, of recent years was The X-Files. Had a very successful rerun. Yeah, I mean, even I was actually going to get to that. Even things like Alex Jones, which is a very performance artist right-wing conspiracy (laughs) theory uh, thing. Uh, No, I mean, there is something to be said. You know, we're talking, we start off the show talking about why people would be maybe interested more in food books. There is something to be said with uh, the rise of interest in in this as well. There's a cultural moment to be looked at here. And I'm kind of wondering if we could kick that around for a couple of minutes, because it's interesting to me, there is at this moment in our country with the current government we have, a determined attempt to return to a 1950s white Christian, almost a a theocratic approach to what we think of when we think of being Americans. Mm -hmm. And yet many people uh, are exploring different religions. Many people are exploring having no religion. People are not going to church. You know, that's something that's very uncommon that's just started really in the 1970s. Other people are going to giant mega churches, which is something that also was not 
popular at all outside of the televangelist world. So I'm wondering if we can kind of kick around why this would be and why this would be an interesting moment. Uh, well, one of the things I think, you know, when you talk about evangelicals and, you know, I, I don't know how Trump weaseled his way into the evangelicals because, you know, nothing, although that, I don't really think they follow the teachings of Jesus, but uh, that's another story. But what I'm thinking is it's so exclusionary that people um, that aren't white middle class or upper middle class, you know, and, you know, they're anti-gay, they're anti-Muslim, they're anti-this, they're anti-that, want their own thing. And when I don't, like, for me, I don't want to exclude anyone. I'm not, I don't practice religion, but I don't want to exclude anyone, you know. Like, anybody can have their palm read. Anybody can do meditation. Like, if you want to do those things, but... My issue with those kind of people is that it's like it's hateful, and it's like I can't practice something where you hate everything that's not what you believe in. Yeah, I think that that I've thought a lot about this return to like the occult, and so like I I get I have clients all the time, and I like um, I see a lot of people interested in it, and I think that it's because. There's this return to we're advancing our left brain and our advancing our technology at like a rapid rate, and we're finally like starting to feel some intuition with it, and it's freaking people out, and we're not used to like understanding our right brain and working with it side by side. We're kind of like super um, practical. I th- one of the one of the things I I thought about was. Um you, you were talking about the the waning of traditional religions, and I think, um, I don't know, starting probably 20, 30 years ago, maybe more, information was supposed to take its place, it seems like. And at least for me and a lot of people I know, it's it's starting to seem like information wasn't the God it was supposed to be. So there's just a lot of confusion, and there's no really like respected pro forma authority. You know, nobody. <coughs> we don't look at the Catholic Church we, we, the way we used to. We don't look at we the don't. presidency. We don't. Well, right. I, would, I would say that it's definitely fallen off. Even even devout Catholics that I know say that it's lost a I, lot of immature. Partly because the the sex scandals, obviously. Let's be. Let's oh be yeah, yeah, I yeah, can't yeah. tell you how many people yeah, I, I met in Chicago who <laughs> went to Catholic school and yeah. you know yeah. are seriously rearranging the way they see the world but there's no there's no established unquestionable authority the way that there was in in times past and there's just a lot of confusion so for me it's like i'll I'll take whatever i can get to explore how the world looks and works Mm -hmm. that's an interesting point well, we have to move on to our, our final subject, our third subject of the day, and the, the kind of the loose uh, overarching theme for this show actually is exploration and, in a way, escapism. And one of the, the books that, uh, that Mike and I have been reading, um, we're going to play an excerpt from it, and I'm going to warn you that uh, when you hear the excerpt, if you actually listen closely to it, um, you're going to probably wonder why, why Mike and Jamie uh, put this on you, because uh, the writing is not the greatest, but we're... Just bear with us. This is a reading from the Expanse series by uh, two authors who go under one name, James S.A. Corey. And this is part of a series uh, called The Expanse, which is also a a show on sci-fi. It is from the genre of space opera, and this is a reading from Leviathan's Wakes. And we'll be back in uh, just about two minutes, and we'll we'll tell you why we're, we're imposing this on you.
the express tube to Londres Nova hummed to itself. The advertisements above the seats promising to make the lives of the riders better in a hundred different ways. Technical certifications, improved undergarments, tooth whitening. The facial recognition software didn't seem to know what to make of him. None of the ads spoke to him. The closest was a thin lawyer in an olive green suit offering to help people find passages to the new systems beyond the ring. Start a new life in the off-world colonies. We can help. Across from him, a boy of about 17 was staring quietly into space, his eyes half open at the edge of boredom and sleep. When Alex had been about the boy's age, he'd been deciding whether to go into the Navy or apply for Upper University. He'd been dating Carrie Troutwine, even though Mr. Troutwine was a religious zealot who hated him for not belonging to the right sect. He'd spent his nights playing battle simulations with Amal Shal and Coral Nardkani. This boy across from him was traveling the same corridors that Alex had, eating at some of the same restaurants, thinking about sex in likely more or less the same terms, but he also lived in a different universe. Alex tried to imagine what it would have been like to include travel to an alien planet in among his options at 17. Would he still have enlisted? Would he have ever met Talissa? A gentle mechanical voice announced their arrival at the Adderpool terminal. The boy's eyes opened, roused back to full consciousness, and he shot a distrustful look at Alex. Deceleration pushed Alex's back, feeling almost like a long attitude burn. Almost, but not quite. And that was a reading from uh, <clears throat> Leviathan Wakes by James S.A. Corey. James S.A. Corey, as I mentioned, is actually two authors. Uh, they live in Arizona. I believe one of them is an Englishman. And if you read the books, you're going to discover a lot of uh, references to things like uh, English soccer and uh, English pub culture, which is which is a little peculiar. But the Jamie, reason, can, I'm yeah. sorry. Oh, can we get a definition of space opera? I, I, I'm not familiar with the genre. Well, that's that's where we're going to go here. Okay. So if you listen closely to that, you're going to discover that um, the writing is very plain and very straightforward. Um, we actually struggled to find a reading that would not uh, bore you to tears. But what this book does and what this entire series does, it is a series of six novels and four novellas, and a seventh novel will be released in October. It is all action. It is nothing but kinetic energy moving the plot forward. Now, a space opera is basically, um, I think when people, the term came up from uh, the Star Trek series. And it basically was um, a portmanteau of the Western genre, which Star Trek really is. It's a frontier Western, but it's set in space. And this kind of recurrent uh, soap opera casting where you had people, uh, the same kind of five or six people, and they developed their characters like they you know, we're in a soap opera. So it was recurrent uh, kind of uh, serial fiction that, you know, I think at its best tried to harken back to the serial fiction of somebody like Charles Dickens. At its worst, it was, you know, the kind of penny dreadful uh, mystery magazine garbage that, uh, you know, is entertaining, but isn't necessarily going to be held for its literary value. Now, The Expanse is very interesting because it kind of fits in the middle. I was actually given this book by a guy named Paul Osborne who said, you know, I'm reading this book. You like science fiction. You guys just had a sci-fi show. You might like it. And I took it home and I threw it on the table. And I didn't read it for a couple of weeks and then I read it. And then the next thing I know, I've bought all six books and I'm starting in the novellas. And everyone that I have given this book to, including Mr. Sack, has, I've given the same kind of thing, you know, space opera, just pick it up and read it. And everyone gets sucked into it. And so it's an interesting cultural phenomenon to me because not only is this a New York Times bestselling book, but it's a bestselling book about space. 
It is kind of loosely based on The Seven Samurai, the movie where huh. it's a group of people in space. Uh, you know, Seven Samurai obviously were, were Ronin that were going out across the, across Asia to avenge and, and find their master. But it's a group of people that are put together. Tales are continually told about them. The heroic exploits. It's a very old literary form, but it's told in a completely alien environment, which is space. Told in a kind of hard science way. There, there is a lot of it actual is hard, true physics. Hard science fiction. It is hard well, science fiction. Yeah, I think um, you, you said Arizona. I, this is my introduction mm-hmm. to space opera. Which, by the way, when we were kicking around ideas for the show, and you sent that email, I thought it said space Oprah. Mm-hmm. Space <laughs> Oprah would be cool. <laughs> oh yeah, Oprah Winfrey in space. Which mm-hmm. well, I, was I thought a space opera for. was like opera. Right, like and the that's music. the next thing yeah. which I thought. Would be awesome. So that'd I had, be awesome too. I had no yes. idea, but then you gave me. You let me borrow Leviathan Wakes, and uh, I started reading. It does suck you in pretty, pretty yeah. darn fast. And I, there's a, there's an interview in the back of this one with the authors or author. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's New Mexico. Oh, uh, maybe in. New Mexico. Yeah. And right. so they have a, a a writers group, I guess, who I think uh, George Martin might be a part of. One of the guys who writes as an yes, assistant to correct. George Martin. George Martin is he actually George Martin is a reader because he blurbs all these books. Yeah, and yeah. then. Another guy they have in the group is an astrophysicist, so they they really make it a point to try to get the physics, the astrophysics right, but they don't really harp on it in the fiction in in detail. They try to make the events follow the laws of astrophysics. Yeah, but um, I would love to go to a space opera convention. Space just opera, to hang out. yeah, just that's to, called C two E two. I think this takes it to the next level. I mean, this is beyond C2E2. Well, you know, the funny thing is, I think this follows in, you know, you have military science fiction with Battlestar Galactica, very popular. You have uh, another popular book that's actually based on a comic book called Dark Matter, which has also been made into a sci-fi series. Similar idea. What is interesting about this particular book, and from a a plot point of view, is that... um, it is about humanity going out into the stars. They don't, they're not flying around to other galaxies. They don't know how to do that. And an alien civilization comes and tries to wipe basically Earth off the map. And in so doing, humanity finds how to get to other galaxies and stars. And one of the things that's very interesting about the books is, uh, predictably, it is a very kind of um, cynical book in a way. Everything kind of goes wrong. You know what I mean? The, the politics are there. They're always fighting with each other. People are not very nice. Corporations are trying to do things that are, are not very good. So in a weird way, this book is kind of a reflection of the cultural moment we're in right now. Yeah, I was going to say, you can read it allegorically. Yeah, it, it is. To me, it's, it's a big allegory. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the way the books are structured, because it's, it's very interesting to me. It's very difficult. I don't know if anybody's ever sat down and tried to um, read like the novelizations, for example, of uh, a Star Trek or a Doctor Who. If you pick those books up, and they're usually for young adults, you, Jeremy, you probably have some at your library. They're nothing but action, it, it, and everybody's always in motion, and they're they're usually about you know seventy to one hundred and fifty pages. But if you actually sit down and, and read them, you're like, boy, this this writing is pretty terrible. You know what I mean? The, the writing's not very entertaining. You do, however, get sucked into it because the writing's so kinetic. If you actually try to sit down and write that stuff, it's much harder than you actually think it is. Pure action. Pure action is extremely difficult to write in a convincing manner because you always have to remember that if you break that action uh, by messing up, for example, by stopping in the wrong place, the entire thing falls apart. What, what really interested me about this series of books is that they're very, very good at maintaining 
the illusion that things are always moving forward, and they do it by shifting perspectives between each of the four or five main characters. One of the, the tropes of the book is they, they, they have uh, various flashbacks, so they tell the same story from different vantage points. So, yeah, I'm, I'm on the first novel still, um, right. and they, they switch, they alternate chapters between two characters. That's the way the whole book's running so far. And one of them is a, is a detective right. in um, a civilization that lives in the asteroid belt. And it has a very uh, noirish detective feel. And he's he's the anti-hero. I don't know if you see... I, have, I never read Dashiell Hammett, but I don't know if he had any anti-hero characters. They all are. They all are. <laughs> okay. Yeah. What about Ben Winters? Is Ben Winters the last policeman? Have you guys read Yes, any? I've read that. Yes, of course. I mean, this if that's uh, you know that's a very literary, a literary novel. Edgar that's, Award winner, yes. And um, but it's about an asteroid. It's going to destroy Earth, and then this this policeman who is trying to solve these murders. Even though the world's going to end, and everyone's like, "Why is this guy trying to solve these murders if the world's it's killing in a McDonald's?" Right? What's that? It's a killing in a McDonald's. Yeah, he hung him. himself. It was the guy hung. Hung himself. Yeah, yeah. 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 And they first thought it was a suicide, but do you see any tie-in? I mean, I- well, it's interesting you mentioned that Ben Winter's book to me was. Um, I read Ben Winter's and I read the sequel. The fact that Ben Winter's book had a sequel to it kind of bummed me out because, yeah, well, I, I yeah, I, I discovered that later. But the fact that he had sequels to it when the Earth is supposed to die, you know, kind of like. I think it hit Indonesia, right? Wasn't that the poor Indonesia? (laughs) Uh, Poor Indonesia. But, um, you know, yes and no. I think these guys were very clever because the hook in the book is is a noir policeman named Miller. Um, And he, the other thing that's very interesting about the series of books is it is true serial fiction in that once you introduce, once you're introduced to a character, that character is going to stay through the entire pathway of the book unless they die. And even sometimes if they die, which is, an interesting and very difficult thing to pull off. You have to have a lot of backstory and a lot invested in characters that otherwise are kind of minor and throwaway. So the, the authors do that very well, and, and it's a clever way to do it. In The Last Policeman, you know, Winters, I think, took a very interesting idea to elevate what was otherwise a rather average crime story. The tension from that came from the fact that the Earth was supposed to be destroyed. And that was why it was disappointing when, you know, I, I discovered there were sequels, because if you remove that tension, the entire thing falls apart. I didn't read the second or third one, but I, I, I like you know when what you I mean, get though? to the end, I, I probably just ruined it for our yeah. listeners, but it crashes into, I think it's somewhere in the third world, but I think it's Indonesia, and you're just like, oh, okay. But, you know, he does solve the crime. He which, does solve the crime. Yeah. I mean, you do have to solve the crime in a mystery. And I will say in, in Leviathan Wakes, the mystery is going to be solved, but what's interesting is they build on that and they build on the physics of it to do other things. This is part, however, again, of another interesting cultural moment for me because science fiction was a, such a disreputable genre for years. I mean, yes, you had Star Wars. Okay, you had Star Trek. But there was a long period where there was no science fiction really on television airways. A lot of science fiction wasn't really necessarily being published. If it was being published, it was being published in cheap kind of mass market paperbacks. Maybe from Tor, uh, you know, nothing against Tor, by the way. Tor Books is a great publishing house. But these books now are coming out, and they're thick doorstopper books from the likes of Neil Stevenson, from the likes of these guys. Uh, you mentioned Ben Winters for the science fiction, apocalyptic angle. Dystopia. Uh, dystopia, all Margaret the rage Atwood. Right now. Yeah. And they're coming out in big, thick, thick trade paperbacks. I mean, these are expensive books, guys. They're, they're expensive to publish, they're expensive to market. These are kind of now elevated to the blockbusters. 
And it's interesting to me because science fiction's kind of taken a leap to where I think mysteries were for a while and where Westerns were before that. And I'm, I'm wondering, I, I, I look at it, you know, this whole theme we've had today of kind of escapist literature. I wonder if it's because of it's our own fears of actually staying on this, this planet right now, you know what I mean, with, with all that's going on with climate change. Dystopian fiction, a lot of it is revolving around that. This is about escaping Earth and going out to the stars in order to get away from a very corrupt political system on Earth. That's one of the big backstories of Leviathan Wakes, and I think we see that right now in our own government and in, in governments around the world. So I'm wondering if we could kick that around for a second, because it's it's interesting to me that we're seeing so many of these books come out at this moment. Well, my, my go-to guy for science fiction is Ballard, J.G. Ballard, and we've talked about him before on the show he has that novel, Drowning World. It's basically, you know, the world gets too hot and floods. And all his, it's kind of an, uh, you know, anti-technocracy writing where it's like people who rely too heavily on technology end up in a bad place. And we've talked about this before too. You know, everybody's connected, but nobody talks to each other. Yeah. And, you know, to me, that's scary. Like I try, like if I go out with people, I want to sit and have a conversation with the people in front of me. I don't, you know, people are on their phones. And so, like, even my wife and I, we try and put our phones away before, like, when we go out to dinner and stuff, because you go out to eat and everybody's on their phone. And it's like, we're all connected, but nobody's communicating. And it's, you know, I, I think a lot of this stuff is a response to where we're at. Plus, you know, the earth's burning at an alarming rate. You know, we have a president wants to dismantle the EPA. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's all extraordinarily relevant. We're kind of sitting in the middle of it right now. I also thought it was interesting that you mentioned the economics of it, that it's expensive to, um, to print these books. And yet publishing houses are, are taking the risk on them and, and succeeding in great numbers. Um, one, I wonder if they're almost written with television in mind down the road um and and two um it's like they're capitalizing all all the things that jeremy was talking about so less focus on uh literary technique and and maybe the aesthetics of words and more focus on um warfare um scarcity uh, economic conflict and just driving it, hammering it into plot and mm -hmm. with the idea that um, it'll be ready-made for television, which means a lot of action and not a lot of word games. Yeah. I'm sorry. I keep thinking about Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I never heard <laughs> no, that's a classic. I mean, that's oh, classic, yeah. it's so good. And of course, that's been... Uh, Dirk Gently's been made into a BBC series lately, too. Oh, really? Yeah, The Salmon of Doubt. Yeah. Oh, I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, it's on, I think it's on BBC America with uh, the kid who played Spider-Man. Is that right? Oh. Toby, Toby McGuire's? Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting. And I think that television angle, of course, this is now a television series right. on the Sci-Fi Channel, which is... Uh, Leviathan is? The Expanse series. Yeah. Oh, that's Expanse. The series yeah, yeah. Of, uh, Sorry. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting thing, you know... I don't want to dwell too much on it, but there there is now a very profitable industry, especially we've seen it, especially in comic books. I think the entire comic book industry was saved by this. The fact that uh, Marvel and to a lesser extent DC were able to monetize their characters into big budget action films, such as Guardians of the Galaxy or uh, the Hulk or, or uh, Iron Man, 
when um, they're basically based on source material that was what, you know, from the 1950s, essentially 1950s and 60s. Um, that I think the eye toward, you know, making a bigger budget television show obviously has to be very attractive to a publisher. Well, I also think too with the advent of graphic novels, because you know, even 15 years ago, certain librarians were, you know, they were not into graphic novels because they were quote unquote comic books. And we've, we've learned over the years that, you know, cognitive development, readings, reading and a comic book's just as important as reading a novel for kids, especially. And now that there's the graphic novels become more of an established literary form, I think that's also going to save those guys as well. Yeah. I agree. Well, we're almost out of time here on I-94 this week. want to remind everyone that we are live next week via tape, the Miracle of Tape. We are not going to have a repeat next week. We're actually joined by Ann Elizabeth Moore. Ann was in town, and she graciously sat down with us. That show was pre-taped, but it will air next Sunday, so it is a brand-new show here on I-94. No repeats for you. Um, with that, I want to thank Jeremy Kitchen. I want to thank Michael Sack. I want to thank Thanks, Teresa Prince Bay for Thanks, being Teresa. on it. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. You are listening to Lumpin' Radio. This is WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM coming from downtown Bridgeport. I-94 is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program airing every Sunday at 10 a.m. CT. Books discussed in this episode include Creepy Crawly Cuisine, The Gourmet Guide to Edible Insects by Julieta Ramos Elordui and Peter Menz, and James S.A. Corey's Leviathan Wakes and Nemesis Games from the Expanse series. This episode originally aired on May 7, 2017. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, intro and promo voiced by David Green, with music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. Additional bed music for I-94 from Marin Celeste, Justin Cholowa, and from the International Anthem Recording Company. For more information on I-94, visit lumpenradio.com.